I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the lifestyle investor community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate, meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. I use this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get, which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash M-H-P, and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors... Join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Most of us are taught that investing our money in Wall Street and waiting 30 years is the key to a profitable retirement. Well, it turns out 95% of Americans are not financially independent by age 65. If you want to learn what the other 5% are doing, today's guest, Garrett Gunderson, can show you the way. For over 20 years, Garrett has helped people keep more of what they make, legally and ethically, by plugging financial leaks and finding cash that is rightfully theirs. 
He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Killing Sacred Cows, and the founder of Wealth Factory, which helps entrepreneurs build their wealth and keep it no matter what happens in the market. In this episode, Garrett shares his advice for navigating a financial future in a time when our world seems progressively unstable. You'll learn why Wall Street will never make you rich, insurance strategies to preserve and grow your wealth, and the exit deal that allowed Garrett to create ongoing cash flow and achieve time freedom. You'll also hear how Garrett is using stand-up comedy to help people win the money game and design a life truly worth living. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Garrett has a few special gifts for the Lifestyle Investor podcast listeners. First, he's giving a free quiz that will allow you to discover your money persona that rules every financial decision you make. Second, he's giving away downloadable versions of his two most popular books, Killing Sacred Cows and What Would Billionaires Do? To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 80. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Garrett Gunderson. Well, what's up, Garrett? I'm so glad to have you on the show. This is such a unique highlight for me because I just love who you are, your personality, the energy that you bring. Uh, So welcome. Yeah, man, it's good to be back together. I should have done this during COVID with you when people try to connect us because I was going to, before COVID hit, I had like four, five or six trips already on the books to go to Austin. And I had heard from people that I just know, like and respect. I got to meet Justin. And so I was like, cool. And then COVID hit. And then I just disappeared basically in the writing comedy and this one man show. And then finally came back up for air, did a tour. And there you were in the front row supporting me full out, man. It was awesome. And then thanks for making time the next day to have some lunch and hang out a little bit and catch up. So I really appreciated it. It's my pleasure. And I got to tell you, it was really easy being in the front row at your show laughing because you're really funny. You've got a great bit. And I love, number one, that your routine was awesome, but then you tried out new stuff and some stuff just landed beautifully. And then other stuff, if you didn't quite get the response that you wanted, you had so many like friends in the audience are like, oh, I'm going to work on this one. You were just so natural, so confident. My wife and I loved our time at your show. Yeah, she's got a big laugh. So she's always welcome in the front row. Always welcome, man. So I just headlined two nights this last Friday and Saturday. And Friday, I had like a third of the room was my friends. Two thirds were just there because of the club and got a standing ovation. Felt really good. Well, the next night, the guy that opened for me, who actually is the one that I first opened for, was like, that might have been your best night of comedy. But I didn't feel that way. Because there was a couple with their arms folded, scowling the whole time. And I was like, should I let them know this is a comedy show? You know, <laughs> And I got a half standing ovation, which is fine. I mean, any laughter and clapping is fine. But uh, and, he, and then my, the guy comes up, he goes, dude, that was your best show ever. And I listened to it on the way home. I'm like, yeah, it actually was. But it's amazing how just seeing a few people. So it means a lot to have a great front row. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's got to be really fun. Uh, nerve wracking also, but fun knowing that your friends are in the audience in a lot of these shows. You luckily, you know, you have friends all over. You've, you're, you're so well traveled. You've spoken all over the, the world, really all over the U.S. for sure. And so it's neat that you can go to all these cities and just have a star studded cast of friends and family that show up to support you. Yeah, I think that it's like these comedy clubs don't fully understand it. So, for example, I did La Jolla Comedy Store. I've done it three times now. 
And uh, the first time I, I went, Keith Yaki and Garrett White had half the crowd was their their people because I put them both on stage. So we're just dealing with like high energy, excited to be there. They're not just trying to escape from their life. They want and so like the owner comes up and he's like, "Dude, I've never seen something like that. That was amazing." And he's attributing way more to it to me than it actually was because part of it's just who you have in the audience. And then I came back. And my friend, Matt Hubbard, who's a pastor in Southern California, invited his church and him and his and the other pastor of the church opened for me. And again, like these people are like standing up and clapping in the middle of the show. And it's just so much energy. And so I've definitely been spoiled. But then when I went to Boston and they were just drunk out of their minds, it was not as fun of an experience. Like it was so much more work for me, you know, than just having this like high energy, excited crowd. Yeah. Yeah, you got to prove yourself, you know, they're, they're ready for you to, you know, make an entrance and, you know, really impress a reputation, (laughs) hard reputation, right? So this is going to be, you know, likely one of your bigger shows that you've ever done. I think you are, you know, you're out of town. What what city are you in right now? Daytona Beach right now in my hotel. I just was having a conversation with Deion Sanders because he was going up on stage and I was sitting in the green room. And uh, I think I could actually beat him in a race right now because he's injured. It's the only time I could probably do that. <laughs> and, and he said he wanted to do five minutes of stand-up comedy. So it's like on his bucket list. So, you know, I think he would do great. But yeah, there's a couple thousand people here that know me as the financial guy because they know my book, what, which used to be called What Would the Rockefellers Do? Now called What Would Billionaires Do? So I walked, it was the first time I've ever walked in to check into a hotel and it took me 15 minutes, pictures, people coming up, but they know I'm doing comedy here, but they don't know me as a comedian. So it's a, it's going to be a fun experience, like fun experience. Yeah. You're going to do a total flip-flop on them. They think you're going to give this financial wisdom, which actually you do a good job of giving some financial education through your humor. Uh, so I got to give you credit on that because your bits, not just being funny, like it's, it's very clever and it's very educational, which is cool. But 2000 people is a lot of people to be doing standup for. Uh, that's big leagues. Uh, I'm I'm just really excited for you. Yeah, last year they had Sebastian Maniscalco a couple of years before Kevin Hart. So I'm definitely uh, getting to play in, in a fun league here. One of the things that we're doing with this education entertainment thing is we've just started filming YouTube videos where we're showing clips from the comedy tour. And whatever that financial concept is funny, then we actually start talking about the education behind it. And so we're in the middle of one that we did last week. And uh, Amanda Stolba is my chief of staff and she's always kind of my co-host and guest. And at the end she goes, Hey, do you have any good financial books that you recommend? And jokingly, I just name off the seven books I've written. Right. And she goes, <laughs> and that's all you have to, to recommend. She goes, well, I have one. And she goes, the lifestyle investor. And I go, oh. by Justin. And she goes, yeah, yeah. How did you know? I'm like, well, I have the book and I know Justin, I'm going on his podcast. So I didn't solicit, she doesn't know you through me. She knows you through her own research as she's really trying to get her financial house in a place of everything we're talking about. She's looking for these outside people. And I was like, well, great. I can endorse that one. Like, go for it. Read that book, jump into it, jump onto it. So she ended up giving a couple of uh, insights from the book to the to the viewers. That video isn't even released yet, but I thought you'd enjoy the, hearing about that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a, a real nice surprise. I'm glad that the book is, uh, you know, kind of out there. And and it's funny, you you can probably fully understand this. This is new for me, where you have this book that kind of has a life of its own. It's out there doing things and you have no idea. I mean, I feel like, you know, I wrote it and I'm done and I get feedback all the time. People pouring in like, hey, I love this. This was impactful. This changed my life. And that is very meaningful 
part of the reason why, I mean, a majority of the reason why I wrote it, but it's crazy the life that it has and the, the, you know, the directions that it goes. And it's like its own little living organism out in the world. And, uh, and your books have had a similar impact on me. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. In fact, if you're willing, I'd love to dig in because you said the title of one of your books changed. And I own the copy of what would the Rockefellers do? So I have that copy. That's what is, you know, my title is that. And now it's what would billionaires do? Right. So the background on the book is first off, like I grew up in in the financial business with insurance from 1998 to 2005. I sold a lot of insurance. I was doing one-on-ones back then and hadn't written a book or anything. And Killing Sacred Cows touches on it, but it didn't really go into a lot of depth. And so I was getting a lot of requests of like, what, what's a practical strategy that anyone could do? You know, like, because a lot of people after they read my stuff, like, that's great. But now where do I invest? Because a lot of what I'm doing is pointing out the myths and philosophically giving them some ideas. And so this book was, when I first started writing, it was very much just like how anyone can start with even 50 bucks a month and start saving as a place to store cash, get better returns on their savings account, but use it for other investments. It wasn't like the, the best golden goose to create you know, cash flow. It was just kind of this storage unit. And as I was writing it, I, I was, came across this article about the Vanderbilts and just how they decimated their wealth. And it was fascinating because I started thinking about like what I learned about the Rockefellers. And I started to research this with my team and they were getting some really cool stories. And it turns out as I was doing webinars, because a lot of how I write is I speak it and I like to teach it. And then I take what like comes from a lot of that. And one of the people that worked for the Rockefeller family was on that call. They were on the webinar and they reached out and they actually said, hey, I think you're spot on with what you're teaching here. If you want more insight, I'd love to give it to you. And she became a client of Wealth Factory. And her name was Sheila. And she's a CPA. And I'm interviewing on, her, on all this kind of stuff. So we released the book, which, by the way, the way the title really kicked in for me was Bernd Harnish's book, you know, um, The Rockefeller Habits. And I liked the book. I liked the title. And I was like, man, what would the Rockefellers do? You know, because I always get looking like I look like Jesus. So what would Jesus do? I'm like, what would the Rockefellers do? So we put the book out, starts doing pretty well. And then we get this letter from an attorney for the Rockefeller family saying we have no issue. We take no issue with the content inside of the book. None of that has to change. But we actually own a financial firm and you using our name to sell books is competitive we would like you to change the name of the book. In my head, I said, what would the Rockefellers do? They'd beat me in court. So I'm going to go ahead and change the name. <laughs> that was basically what happened. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like, I, I get that aspect, but I, I wonder if they'd be m- maybe missing the bigger picture here. They've got free advertising for a book that is a monster success out in the yeah. industry that is passively just more brand recognition for them. I mean, it's it's more empowerment. So you know, if I were them and, you know, clearly I'm not, but if I were, I feel like I would want that even if it were in competition, potentially, I mean, we don't even know that that's the case, but let's just say that they lose whatever percentage to, to wealth factory, they're still going to increase beyond that because of the advertising. Right. I like, okay. If I'm approaching it, I would have said, Hey, we'd like if you're going to use our name to actually work a deal where we could put links to our firm and maybe even partner or do a licensing deal, like more collaboration versus competition. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I mean, look, 
here's the story. I, I come out with Killing Sacred Cows. It's New York Times. It's a pretty, pretty big book. A year later, and, and I guess I'll give some of the background on this. It's fair. So one of the guys that ran um, the Rich Dad companies had heard about my book and someone that was part of their like overall organization was someone I knew. And they said, hey, would you be willing to send a box of Killing Sacred Cows for the executives at Rich Dad to read? said, yeah, that'd be awesome. I love Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's an honor. So I send it. And a year later, there's a, a DVD that they put out called Disrupting, or not Disrupting, sorry, Shooting Sacred Cows. Disrupting Sacred Cows is the follow-up book that I just turned in before this interview started. So I got my manuscript done and in the hands of the publisher. We've got it coming out later this year. But Shooting Sacred Cows, and mine's The Nine Financial Myths, and Kiyosaki's was The Eight Financial Lies. So the first thing I did was I did send a legal letter to protect my intellectual property. But Justin, I wasn't really looking to sue them or fight them. I was just looking to say, hey, I'm aware of what's going on. And I want to let you know, like, I care about my intellectual property. Then I reached out to them personally and just said, hey, I don't know everything you guys are planning on doing with this, but maybe there's something we could do together. And they promoted me three different times. I flew out to Arizona, did an interview with Kiyosaki. We later on did a couple of different, you know, uh, I was on his podcast a couple of times. And then we did some promotions to their entire database. And actually, the guy that, that gave the green light to using shooting sacred cows was like, yeah, we admit we just kind of ripped your stuff off, but really liked it. It was pretty consistent. I was like, all right, I'm cool with it. If we're going to make some money together, it's not a big deal. And uh, that was a much better situation than being upset with him for the rest of my life versus working together and doing something together. Yeah. And it turned out even cooler. I mean, just the opportunity to collaborate like that and do some things together, regardless of whatever financial upside there was or there wasn't, that in itself is a great experience, a great story, a different angle than what you would have been able to experience otherwise. So, and, and, to me, it's like, what a great honor. You know, I have people that are ripping off my book and saying, here's the summary, you know, buy mine on Amazon instead of buying the actual book. And, you know, someone's like, I've had several people that are like, you should send a cease and desist letter. And I'm like, no, I don't care. It's no big deal. Like they're doing some extra advertising. I want more people to read it. They don't have to read it from, you know, my own writing. I look at it like I'm flattered. If someone's willing to do that, if someone's willing to copy or, you know, whatever it is, it, that is flattering to me. So what would the Rockefellers do? Someone put out an audiobook before I had an audiobook out with my exact cover, but their <laughs> names on it and they were selling it. So we did ask Amazon to stop selling that, you know, because I didn't do uh, what would the Rockefellers do with Audible? I just did it on my own. I did Killing Sacred Cows with Audible, but I actually didn't do it until 10 years after it was originally released. And now the audiobook has more reviews by double than the actual physical book. Well, the and audio... Yeah, your audiobook's really good. I listened to your audiobook on that. And there were moments where, I mean, I was cracking up because you're you're even like funny from like reading a book, like some of your stories and your, you know, I mean, it's it's great. It's entertaining. I have an audiobook that'll come out sometime soon. I we've done a limited release. It's of a another book that I'm working on that that I've been working on for five years. It's like the main is my book. It's the book that I'm putting everything into. And I've released the audio to a few people just for feedback. And I and it's since I've been doing comedy. So it's definitely, I think it's a book that nobody plays on more than 1.0. Like, you know, some books go to 1.5, 2.2 times speed. I still can't slow myself down, but I definitely just interject so much more personality and stories and all that kind of stuff. And so that, that's the key, right? Getting people engaged and, and uh, right. you know, and, and the thing that you do is you add so much value to people that 
it's, you know, if someone tries to copy you, it's Mongolian plumbing. Have you ever heard of Mongolian plumbing? No. <laughs> so this is something because I've had a lot of clients that, you know, they get really upset when people steal their stuff. And I'm like, well, the Mongols were in, at war with Russia and they go into this bathroom and they see that they could flush the toilet. And they're like, this is amazing. We need to take this toilet back and show our, our wives how cool this is. So they steal the toilet. But when you steal the toilet, it doesn't bring the plumbing along with it. And so a lot of it is it's still surface. It's not the depth of it. Like by the time someone copies your material, you're already thinking at new levels of depth and creativity and possibility and personal experience because of your actual investing. Like if I tried to steal someone's, you know, stuff around tax liens, I don't do tax liens. I'm never going to be as good as the person that's in the game and playing the game. So I, yeah, it's, it's an interesting world that people are still hijacking other people's content. And I feel like if you could be, if you could put that much effort into something like that, why not put effort into something that's uniquely who you are and what you can contribute? But I don't know, people are confused. Yeah, it's it's the easy way out. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, maybe you can ride someone else's coattails and make some money while doing it. I just think that, you know, we're we're in this world where we can worry about little things that to me are just real petty. Or we can just say, hey, I don't even have time to worry about that. I'm just going to focus on these things that either A, really light me up and, you know, bring me energy or B, these projects that I'm in the middle of that, you know, are my livelihood. And so that to me just makes the most sense. But I, I love I love hearing some of these stories and hearing some of the things that you've gone through. Uh, there's, you know, someone once told me that there's life before being an author and life after being an author. And I thought that was a total joke. I thought that was like, oh, whatever. Like, it, they can't change that much. It's a massive difference just in, in, in every way, shape or form. Like, you know, I, I'm the same person, but the way that people treat you, the engagement that people want to have, you know, I guess you you have some uh, relationship equity or relationship capital with people that you don't know. It's a fascinating space, but it also comes with a lot of other people, you know, that are maybe not in it with the best intentions. You got a ton of people that have great intentions and want to reach out. And then there are people that just are on the opposite side of that fence that, they see you as the tallest skyscraper and they want to tear it down so that they can be the tallest. It is. Uh, I, what I like about it is someone could read and get to know a lot about how I think and who I am, that when we do have a conversation, that there's ways that we can accelerate the depth of that conversation or the understanding. I've had some really, really intelligent Wall Street people, which I don't usually say a lot of great stuff about Wall Street that have read my book and that I've been able to have really productive conversations with because there's certain things that we can agree to and there's certain things that we could debate. And so, you know, like I've had people in Killing Sacred Cows, I think chapter seven is probably the most revolutionary chapter of the book and people that don't view insurance the same way that I did when I wrote the book. It's amazing how many people have a brand new perspective and paradigm once they read that chapter, like completely different and really intelligent and go, yeah, you, you made such a point that I, I had really thought about it. And that's probably the chapter I hear the most about that way, you know? 
Yeah, and and it is eye opening. You know, it, it's interesting for me because I've used a very similar strategy, and really, I think there's a lot that we have in common. I was really excited to have you on the show. One, just because it's fun to talk and dig into what it, what's going on in each other's lives, but secondly, I just think that we think about things so similarly. Where we live in this world of cash flow, it's it's of high value because. That is, you know, in, in our minds, in, in many cases, a superior type of investment if it can support your lifestyle. But at the same time, through the lens of insurance, you know, how do you get insurance in place to work alongside? How can you use insurance, the properly crafted whole life insurance or, or you know, uniquely non-term generally, just, you know, some sort of, of permanent life insurance that can give you advantages? Maybe it's premium finance, maybe it's PPLI and where you can really use it to your advantage. And so you do such a great job of laying that out. In my book, it was my goal to be able to do that and show how I could do what the banks do and and have that fractional reserve lending where you take the same dollars, you invest them in two different places, you get two different returns. And so now it's exponentially greater. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, PPLI is something that I've read about in other books, but, but like they scratch the surface. I mean, because you have to be pretty wealthy to jump into private placement life insurance, where I remember I was talking to this guy, he was an insurance guy, and I was in my early 20s. And he talked about how he'd sold Donald Trump an insurance plan, and like a life insurance. And I was like, wow, like, how long ago was that? What did you sell? Him? And I go, have you ever done more with him? He goes, no, 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 his team figured out private placement life insurance and never needed me again. And I was like, what is private placement life insurance? So I start researching it. And that was part of like, when I wrote, what would the Rockefellers do? What would billionaires do? Is like, okay, most people can't do that. So how do we design something as close to that as possible? You know, and that the masses could kind of utilize. And premium finance is something that I've done in my own personal finances, where you get a bank to actually give you a loan, but banks don't, they don't love lending on real estate. That's not their preference. If they can lend on cash, that's actually a higher preference, which usually means you get a lower interest rate. So you can get like one and a quarter percent of a loan from a bank to go into a cash value. So just like you get a bank to give you a mortgage on a home, you can also have them give you a kind of mortgage on a cash value plan. And so that's pretty fascinating as well. But most of my stuff is pretty straightforward, just overfunded whole life policies that I've used over and over again. I've when I was 19 years old, I started with 50 bucks a month. By the time I was 20, I was doing $262 a month. And now I've got 26 policies between the ones on myself, my wife, my kids, and business associates. And that's been the way I store my cash. Instead of getting 1% in a money market account, I'm getting 4%. Instead of paying taxes, I'm not paying taxes. I can get access my cash very easily. I've used it to buy a business. I've used it to buy real estate. I've used it to buy even more real estate. I've used to buy crypto. I've used it to buy things that make sense based upon what's going on in the economy, but without the risk of losing the cash during downturns of the economy. This is the problem. When people are overly leveraged and invested in things that are volatile, some of the times the best opportunities are when things are down and they don't want to cash out things when they're down. This is my stability fund. And even if it's only getting four or 5% tax-free, I know I can tap into that at any time. So it's kind of, I look at it like as my medium term storage. I still use, you know, a little bit of cash, a little bit of a uh, gold and silver for like really short term stuff. But this is the stuff where I'm going to have an allocation that I need to get to the money within a week, but I don't need to get into it in the first hour 
or it's not what I'm paying bills out of or paying payroll out of. So it's really kind of that middle strategy for me. Yeah. And technically you don't ever have to pay it back. So let's say you hit hard times and, you know, bills are tight. Well, you don't have to pay this back. This is a repayment to yourself. So at whatever point in time that you do die, it would just be taken away from the death benefit. So it's it's really a unique strategy. Tax-free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tax-free death benefit, tax-free distribution, tax-free growth. There's very few investments, uh, if any others, that give you all three of those. And I, I think that that's you know, part of the reason that, that it drew me in and why I wanted to start utilizing these policies. And I did this early on. You know, when I started getting in, into mine, people around me thought I was crazy. People told me that this is the worst decision that you've ever made financially because I was single. You know, I wasn't dating anyone. So it wasn't even like I was close to getting married. I had no kids, but I saw the way that the numbers worked. And I also knew other wealthy people that were doing it. And I was like, hey, if they're doing it, there's probably a reason. And so that's when I really started digging in. And the other thing I like about it is there is a guaranteed return that is fixed. So you have the opportunity of upside if they do well managing the money with the dividend, but you have a a floor that you're going to not earn less than. And that's different than the numbers you get from portfolios or financial planners, you know, when you have money in in the stock market where it gives you an average rate of return, which is very manipulative. It's it's not it's not a true return. It's only averaging it out. And so it's not the actual return you get. It is really just a shame that that can be used and promoted, but it is. And so I, I like having an actual return of what you really make. I think that's important. Agreed. If you have a hundred grand and you lose 10%, it goes to 90 grand. And if the next year you earn 10%, you're like, oh, cool, back to even. No, because 90,000 earning 10% doesn't get you back to 100 grand. If there were no fees, it gets you back to 99,000, plus you lost the time value of money over that period of time. So your average is zero, but your actual is negative. And then the fees can make it even more negative. And the lost time makes it even more negative on a compounded level. So, you know, there's an economic value to certainty. When we have certainty, our mindset's different. And when we know that that could be there, we could pounce on opportunities without the fear of the volatility with that particular tool. Yeah. And I really dug into this in my book where I really wanted to attack the mistruths, the mis, you know, the, the misalignment, the manipulation that exists in the financial services industry. And by the way, I've got a lot of friends. You've got a lot of friends that are great at what they do. You know, they really want what's best for their clients. So it's not that everyone's this way, but it's really that the industry itself is broken. And so I always wonder, you know, when I, when I wrote this, like, what was the response going to be? And, you know, some people, you know, some financial advisors and money managers weren't crazy about me kind of opening uh, people's eyes to this. And others were like, this is incredible. I'm so glad you're sharing this. And in some cases, in several cases, it's almost like there was this, this wool pulled over people's eyes where they didn't even realize that the industry was doing that and steering in a certain direction. And so it opened their eyes. And, and it's funny because in my Lifestyle Investor Mastermind, there are many financial advisors. I mean, I just didn't think that that was going to be a lot of my target market, but there are so many of them that want to learn this alternative investment space and you know how to invest outside of the stock market, how to get returns with lower fees, with more control. And so it, it is pretty fascinating that the education in 
the financial services industry is really kind of streamlined and geared into public equities as a general rule. Yep. It's almost synonymous, investing equals stocks in people's brains. So that has been a brilliant marketing plan by the by Wall Street. But, you know, in my comedy, I have this whole notion of like, does Wall Street have a brand you'd trust in any business? I mean, <laughs> you know, every movie's about Wall Street being evil and bad, and yet people still hand their money over to them. And I mean, I think that we got to see this really with like the quantitative easing that happened, you know, with the Fed. A lot of that money went to Wall Street, not to individuals. And so they're just adding all this money that's going into Wall Street. And by the way, a lot of the public companies just bought back their own stock so that because they could get the borrowing at such a low rate that they could actually get the gains instead of investing in infrastructure or growth or employees. And so so I just I'm not a real fan of the rules of Wall Street. And the first rule that bothers me is the fiduciary rule. Now, fiduciary as a customer sounds awesome. But fiduciary as the rules of stock management is a problematic moral hazard. And what I mean by that is when we have a stock that represents their shareholders, there's employees, and there's customers. And the only fiduciary responsibility is to the shareholder, not to the employee and not to the customer. So what that says is, they always have to act in what's going to be the most profitable. But we know that because of earnings reports, that's a quarterly profitability, not the viability five years from now or 10 years from now. And often that comes on the backs of employees that are not being properly rewarded. And we're watching that happen in today's economy where they're kind of fed up and walking away. And you have this huge demand for talent and a pool that isn't connected to that. And so I I really have an issue with like, only people holding stocks getting the value. And I like that small business employs more people than big business. And that most of the good that happens in the world often comes from small businesses that are not under the pressure of some stock report that is never really considering all factors. So it's not that it's this case in all the ways, but I do find that Unfortunately, I wrote some articles in Forbes about how 84% of the gains in the market go to 10% of the investors. Now, part of that is that hedge funds have more money than the average investor in the funds, but it's because they can sell short and they can also do other things on margin or with calls and puts or even potentially using other derivatives. And the average investor is simply long. That average investor loses money because of flash trading that we saw in the past, because of unidentified fees that are inside of everything from 12B1 fees and expense ratios and admin fees and legal fees. And then we have the fact that they're going long and going, oh, the market did 7% this year. Yeah, the problem is the hedge funds did 10 and the average investor did 4, but because everything's being said to average 6% or 7%, they turn on the blinders to what's actually happening with their money. And most importantly, Wall Street does not promote cash flow. And every financial institution that wants to take people's money wants to create cash flow with it, yet they're training people to wait for 30 years in hopes that one day, someday, they can finally create cash flow before they ever learned how to do it over the previous decade. So not that I have any passion towards this, Justin. That's just a small (laughs) opinion that I have. And so I've had zero money in the stock market since 2002. In 2000, uh, in May of 2000, I stopped contributing to the stock market, and it took me a couple of years to finally cash out a 401k that I had. I took the penalty, 
And I put it in a, a yard in at my house so I could always see my 401k grow when I heard everybody else complain about theirs not growing. You know, <laughs> watch the physical growth of my yard. But I, I just invest in stocks that matter to me, which are my own. Now, there might be individual stocks that I could be enticed to buy potentially based upon what they're doing, but I know it's all secondary market. So it doesn't actually provide any capital to that company. It simply is a market where you're buying out someone else that held that stock. And they're saying, this is where I want the cash, either because they feel like their growth is done or they have a different priority for it. So I'm not really apt to want to support that. I'd rather invest in people that I know and that I see. I'd rather invest in my own skill sets. I'd rather invest in companies that I have say or control over, which I don't with the public company. Hey, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my online course. As a listener, you probably know my story. In under two years, I had multiplied my net worth to over eight figures and my investments were generating enough passive income for my wife and me to quit our jobs. Since launching the Lifestyle Investor book and podcast, I've had a lot of people reaching out asking how I was able to accomplish this in such a short period of time and how they can start investing just like I do. My methods are unconventional, but I've always wanted to share my strategies and help as many people as possible accomplish financial freedom. And while the podcast is loaded with lots of alternative investment advice from both myself and my guests, it's not intended to be a comprehensive system that walks you through my step-by-step process. That's why I decided to create the Lifestyle Investor Course, a roadmap for anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of lifestyle investing. Anyone can use my system, no matter what level they're at in their investing career. So if you want all my strategies for creating passive income and building wealth conveniently packaged up into a simple to follow course, visit justindonald.com forward slash course for all the details. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, there's a lot less control in the public markets. And there's also, there's more fees. You know, you're you're a retail investor coming in, paying a higher fee for a lower return with a lot of volatility risk. And it's not to say that we shouldn't have exposure to the stock market. Like you, I have very little. And when I say very little, I mean, it's, it's a very small percentage. But at the right times, I, I may enter in, you know, I, I did enter in during the beginning of the pandemic. There have been a few other times that I have entered in, you know, during the, the last financial crisis I got in. And so, you know, I think that it's really important long term to kind of know what you want to do. I think most people kind of look at the stock market as like the end all be all. And that this is where everyone makes their money. But the reality is it's a very small percentage of people that make their money. It's more institutionally advantageous. And then the people who often make money there are the people that have great wealth that are placing a good component of it there. Most people aren't building their wealth. Some, I mean, you have anomalies, but most people aren't building their wealth and have this massive you know, shift in net worth via the stock market. It's that they had something on the private equity side. They sold a business, they grew a business and have massive cash flow. And so they are placing some of their net worth. And in many cases, it's just a small percentage of their net worth to kind of maintain and slowly grow it. And I think that's a, a, a really good distinction on you know who has money in how much they have in when do people go in you know is, is the stock market really making people rich 
Well, for most people, no, they made themselves rich and then they use the stock market as a tool to just make sure they're not losing that wealth. Right. Dave Ramsey's going to disagree and tell us that it's all because you started investing early enough and always and never think about it and just let it continue to grow and diversify it. But I just have, you know, and they're saying they had a book coming out with a study of 10,000 people showing how they could start with something little and end up with a lot. My problem with that is it's, you know, like first and foremost, we've got to invest in ourselves in our skill sets and our abilities in knowing our value in delivering that value. And if we haven't done that and we're putting it into companies we know nothing about, I get why that happens because the world wants us to believe that there's a hierarchy based upon education and genius. And that education is when you have a certain number of degrees or you go to a certain type of school, then you can, you know, get that job on Wall Street. And now you know more than everybody else and they can make money by handing money over to you. They have no relationship to those outcomes. They don't understand it. And and it's unfortunately not the returns they thought they were getting. Now, someone who's wealthy and says, I'm going to take a portion of my assets to create liquidity and a hedge with the stock market. And they go for more stable structures where they're not aggressively trying to get huge returns. I got to tell you, like, here's how I feel about the stock market right now. It is built upon the back of inflation through massive amounts of money that were pumped in through this quantitative easing with the Fed. They would put so much money in and the market loves liquidity. And because there was so much cash that came, it pushed the value of the the stocks up without that value actually translating or transferring to value to us customers and people in the world. And so what it's created is this artificial hedge that essentially people go, oh, look how much money I've made in the last little while with the market. But as soon as the Fed starts talking about moving interest rates, the market moves because it's trying to react to the future, not to the reality. And so when the Fed has multiple times added massive amounts of money, especially with like shadow banks that didn't have liquidity and they were over over leveraged and then they got a trillion dollars from the Fed, it saved the people that were behaving the worst, the people that were doing the worst things and not being intelligent. So the Fed has intentionally, okay, the Fed has actually, whether it was intentional or not, rewarded bad behavior. And the recipient of that bad behavior have been companies that were bailed out, even though they weren't doing the best work. So this is my issue is I don't want to support that behavior, even if I can totally profit from it. I'd rather support behavior where I see the direct outcome of the income. I see the direct outcome of the value. And even if that means I'm a little less wealthy, I'm wealthy in relationships and in lifestyle, not in the backs of something that is an artificial construct. Yeah. And it's funny that you went there because I was actually going to say this as well, where the the businesses, you got all these hedge funds and banks that are actually incentivized to be risky because when they're risky and it doesn't work out, they get bailed out. Um, but that doesn't mean that the investors get bailed out, right? So people are losing tons of money, but they're getting their money back. And then during the stimulus, the money is going first to the banks. And so the banks are getting their peace no matter what. The banks win no matter what, but they also control the narrative and they also can you know, freeze your money at any time because uh, you're guilty until you prove that you're innocent. It's the inverse relationship of you know, what constitutionally we're, we're supposed to have, which is innocence and, until proven guilty. So, you know, there, there's definitely the, this contradiction there that that is just interesting. And then you've got this whole situation with 
you know, all this money being printed, inflation growing like crazy. There's no way you'll ever get me to believe that it's only 7%, like they said, in the month of December. Impossible when 40% of our our dollars in circulation were just printed in the last two years. And they're not even printed. They were just created on a on a ledger, right? Right. But they still stay printed, Justin. <laughs> they're still pretending like there's a printing press popping out a trillion dollars in 30 days. Right. That's not humanly possible. That's right. That's right. And so it's unfortunate because you have all these like assets that are getting, you know, blown up in value. But like you said, it's not because they're more valuable. Ironically, there's a ton of assets out there that are not getting these dollars. And so the smart money you'll see, uh, and you you know, some of this already is going to start going to these other un like underappreciated assets, maybe assets outside of, in, in our case, the borders of the United States, and just going to places where it can really do some some major good and have some tremendous upside. I think a lot of people are, are really worried about where do you put your money? You know, there is there going to be a crash sometime? I mean, at some point, there has to be some sort of a crash. I don't know when. No one knows when. Anyone who tells you they know when, is wrong. Too many factors, man. There's too many factors. Yeah. You know, like, okay, let's say you and I thought we could predict it. And then the Fed goes, we're going to add another $2 trillion, And we're going to keep it to zero. And then even if we could predict when that happens, what happens when the banks receive the money? Do they release it or do they hold on to it? Because they held on to it for a long time. And the Fed was pissed because they weren't lending and releasing and it wasn't lowering interest rates. All it was doing was creating massive stability in an unstable time instead of actually moving to the poor and the middle class because banks are not in the business of lending to people unless it's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that can't afford payments. And so ultimately, we keep having these policies. And by the way, the Federal Reserve, they're not even the government. They're not federal or a reserve, yet they're making monetary policy you know, and they're ultimately giving money and they don't really actually print it. I mean, it's an insane proposition in my mind that our government doesn't own our money supply, that they're party to a central bank that's private to dictate what's happening. And it just ends up in the wealthy's hands. It doesn't end up helping people. Because if you've, if you got your unemployment check or you got money from the CARES Act or, or just automatically came to your inbox, that may feel good temporarily, but all that did was raise all these prices because there was no value exchange for that. So now when you go back to the income you're on before, everything costs 40% more, but everybody that had these inflation adjusted assets have 40% more value in their assets or more. And what it did is it's actually going to increase our wealth gap moving forward. It's going to increase the wealth gap. There's no substitute for value. If you don't learn how to create value, deliver value, serve, solve problems, all these kind of things. And if you don't have you know, control over that outcome, unfortunately, people have been trained that their biggest asset is their job and they're trading their life and their time for that job. And that job is never going to keep pace with inflation. So the only solution is invest in yourself and become an investor and learn how to invest. And I get it, it takes effort. That's why we got to crush this dumb narrative of it's too complicated, just trust the experts. Well, guess what? The experts are only in the normal Wall Street investments that are going to have a minimized overall return once inflation gets accounted for and once they stop doing quantitative easing. And we're watching that happen. When the Fed didn't pump more money, the markets 
terribly reacted. I mean, it's, it's, it feels complicated for the average person. But the reality is when we look at money as a concept, as a measurement of value creation, and we ask, how can we make more money by helping more people or more deeply impacting the people that we help and think a little bit entrepreneurially of how we contribute to the bottom line or entrepreneurially how we create the bottom line, that's what's really going to make a big difference. That's what's going to solve a lot of these problems. Yeah. And when you're printing money the way you're printing money, then if you're not putting it to work, your money is really diminishing, I mean, by the day. And so if you're not buying assets, then you really are losing purchasing power. And ideally, I always, you know, really like to, you know, kind of teach and share that I think you want to buy cash flowing assets because not only do you keep up with kind of this fiat currency today and and spend those dollars today, but you've got an asset that appreciates in tandem with the monetary supply, the expansion of that supply. More dollars get printed, means the dollar's worth less, means it takes more dollars to buy something, so assets are worth more. So every dollar that gets printed means that your asset's worth more, even if you didn't improve that asset, right? Even if you did nothing to make it better, simply printing money makes the asset worth more. So you want, you actually want to be in a situation where you're buying assets that can appreciate. Yep. Inflation is, is going to be a tough thing to deal with for the majority of the population. And, you know, I mean, because when you're in consumer debt, you're just in trouble. But when you're an investor that has, you know, investing loans, that inflation makes it easier and easier every year. It devalues the, the cost of that loan and improves your cash flow, essentially. But when you're used to a certain income, and then all of a sudden that income doesn't do it for you. And then credit cards start to become the way to supplement it other than assets. Now bankruptcy is almost insured. And, and this is why, you know, I feel like, hey, we, we teach everyone how to read, but we don't teach them how to read financial statements or even understand what money is. I'm a little bit concerned, though, because I kind of look at it like Western medicine. Western medicine is basically dictated by big pharma. Big Pharma is funding the universities. They're the colleges that are, you know, that are giving the degrees. They're fund. They're lobbying the Congress all the time, and so we have all this terrible opioid information that's wrong and that they funded to distract people, and then people are addicted to it. I would worry that Wall Street would infiltrate and start educating people on money. That they'd go, "Hey, the best thing we could do is indoctrinate people with." you know, this is too complicated or they have to invest the way that we're trying to invest, which is not how we invest, right? But, and that that would be my concern. So what you're doing, what I'm doing, I think is really important because money is something that we all deal with and that, that has very little instruction. Yeah, and I, I think the the proof is in the pudding, right? So we, you know, you can look at the different reports that are out there where over the last 15 years, only 5% of money managers actually beat the S&P 500 index. So your cheapest way to get into the stock market is to just get into these indexes. Totally. And then that outperforms 95% of the time the, the people that are managing money. And that's over the last 15 years. The, you know, there, there's another- Robo-advisors coming up. They're going to be yeah. actively managed with low fees versus actively managed with human labor, which is high fees. Or straight up index funds. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not a big investor in the market, but if I were, it'd be robo advisors and it would be index funds. Unless somehow Ray Dalio put his arm around me and said, I'll let you put your money with me. Other than that, I'm pretty much just going to the robo advisors and index funds. 
Yeah, your your average person isn't going to be able to afford the, you know, the hedge funds that really consistently beat the market, right? And and by the way, you don't even want your money in a hedge fund. That I mean, that's risky. I mean, if you were to do the hedge fund approach, which is where people with a lot of money, they're going to come in and say, hey, I want to, you know, put money with, with you know, these hedge funds. They're spread out across 10 different hedge funds. They're hedging their bet with other hedge funds. Right. And even in the, even in hedge funds, I like the hedge funds that are trying to create more stable returns. So they're not hitting home runs. They're just looking to stabilize so you don't have wild swings, which again, that's for people who've already made their money. And they're saying, I need to have a hedge because I don't want to just have it sitting in cash. And, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, there's a different philosophy. I, I think that diversification as a strategy for growth is terrible because you get distracted. It's diversification. Focus is the strategy for growth. Diversification is the strategy for preservation, but it has to be intelligent diversification where most people go, oh, I have three different mutual funds. Well, guess what? All three of them are holding some of the same stocks, you know, and if it's a growth fund, there's times where growth is not in favor, but they have to stay in growth. Otherwise, they get fired and sued because of the objective of the fund. And so, yeah, again, just go index funds if you're going to go funds, you know? Yeah, for your average everyday person, you know, I, I do think that that is, is, you know, it's the most cost-effective way from a performance standpoint, from a fee standpoint, you know? And, and by the way, there are hedge funds that are out there that have an incredible track record where they haven't lost money in 20 years. But like you said, they're not hitting huge returns. I mean, you might be getting four or five percent. So today it's not keeping up with inflation. You know, at times in, in history, times in the last decade, it was, but you're not losing money. And so that's that's you know a big angle of a lot of people where they say, All right, I've made a lot of money. Why don't I put 15 to 25 percent uh, with these hedge funds, 15 to 25 percent of my portfolio with these hedge funds? The goal is to just not lose it. Right. I don't I don't you know, singles are great and that's all that I need. And then let's put, you know, this other, you know, 25 percent to 35 percent in real estate and then this other 25 percent in private equity. And then let's have some, you know, fixed income over here. And and so um, the way that these portfolios work, it's a lot different than what I think most people realize. You know, when you look at the the structure of a family office, and and by the way, for for those of you that are are unfamiliar with what a family office is, it's when you have someone that has a, a significant amount of wealth and they kind of build their own management company around finances, everything and everything money related for themselves. And then there are these multifamily. So there's a single family office or multifamily offices where maybe there are a handful of clients that are being served by investment managers and CPAs and attorneys, and you kind of have it all in-house. And if you look at their allocations and you look at the, you know, the way that they kind of set things up for the wealthiest people here in the United States, wealthiest people across the world. But I mean, I've looked at, you know, these strategies with a lot of these groups it is nowhere close to what people think. And I can assure you, it's not heavily weighted in the stock market. Good point. Yeah. You know, there's so much we could get into right now. I mean, I have so much fun talking about this stuff with you, Garrett. I mean, it's, it's an absolute blast because you're a wealth of knowledge around 
you know, so many of these things, public market, private market, you name it. But I love that you yourself, you know, have have your hat in the ring and you've created cash flow. You've you've bought assets that cash flow. And recently you had an exit, which I think is really exciting. And and you know, I think that should be celebrated anytime an entrepreneur, you're not just an investor, you're an entrepreneur as well. And anytime you can sell, you know, a business, I think that there's there's always room to have ample celebration. Yeah, I mean, I think that the way I sold it, you would like because I've got cash value. So I wasn't worried about getting a lot of cash up front because then I'm going, where am I going to allocate this that could compete with what I'm creating in the business? So I ended up selling it for a lot less up front and then created a licensing deal that's been creating ongoing cash flow, which is essentially still getting me like half the cash flow that I was getting before for like one twenty-fifth of the effort, because now I'm just showing up as a presenter, which I'm good at, but I'm not dealing with the operations. And they've increased their budget towards, you know, online marketing and generating leads because I'm not necessarily been on stages during COVID and everything. And they've done really well without me. And they've done, and it's great because part of the problem when I was the owner is I had a partner and he was really good. Like he's 17 years older than me. When you meet him, you think he was in the military. He's just very systematic and consistent. I'm a little bit erratic and passionate. And what would happen is there was like this faction of the team, like half the team gravitated towards his consistency, half the team gravitated towards my inspiration. And it created kind of like conflict within the culture. And I I saw that. And when I saw that, I called him, I said, you know what, I really should just sell this to you. Because then people are going to report to you. You can hire and fire the way that you want. You can run the business the way that you want, but I'll still be a spokesperson. I'll still be a face. I'll still create content, which is what I really want to do anyway. So we really just leverage each other's strengths and it's gone extraordinarily well. I mean, the, the transaction, we decided to do it in November of 2020, the same week I decided to create a comedy special. And that was instrumental so I could actually write and practice and be ready to perform within five months a comedy special filmed with Emmy winners and a you know awesome stage and everything. So wouldn't have been possible. It allowed him to really do it the way that he wanted to. So it's been a really nice situation. And then I'm working on another exit right now for another licensing deal that I had that I didn't have ownership in the company, but I could trigger uh, you know, exiting my them buying me out. And so we're in the process of that as well because I'm really committed to edutainment. You know, I want to educate in an entertaining way and I don't want to be bogged down to any operational pieces that would prevent me from becoming a better performer or reaching more people. So I've got two books coming out in the next 12 months, maybe three, because I wrote a children's book with an amazing author, Julia Cook, who sold 3 million children's books on money. You know, the books on money, she's never written a book on money, but I knew money. So we combined it. It's called I Am Money and I Don't Grow on Trees. And then I've got Disrupting Sacred Cows coming out. So I've I've really been able to immerse myself in, in that and free up my time. And I think that that's a tough thing to do when we get to know something really well and we can always count on it. But then something new and exciting that I could commit to like how too many people straddle and they never quite get there. So I really release that. There's a financial benefit and I could really grow on this other side. Yeah, that's incredible. The way that you structured your deal is fantastic. Not only is it a win-win where your partner's like, great, I can I can purchase this for less upfront. So that's a huge win for your partner. But for you to be able to remove the vast majority of your time to make half as much as you are making, that's brilliant. And I wish that more people would see the value in that. I think today, from a society standpoint, we're conditioned to just want to make more money 
when making more money may in fact cost more time, but most people are glad to give away that time. And um, I've always been of the opinion that I'm happy to make less money if it can be less time. Well, you went exponentially less time, but just for a small fraction or a small reduction in the income. That to me is winning at life. Like you win the lifestyle game. And that's the most important game to win because then you can focus your energy on your passions like you are with comedy and and content creation. And you can really live what your purpose here on earth is. And I just, you know, I admire you for being able to make that move. And I think that it's going to serve you. It already has, you know, but it's going to serve both parties really well. That's a win-win situation at the highest level. And uh, it really allowed you to buy your time back to do what you're most most passionate about and you are just alive you're you're oozing with enthusiasm and it's incredible it's a nice exciting man a couple thousand people i mean i, I became a professional comedian declared it well i, I hired a, i got my manager november 15th of 1999 or not 2019 okay so 1999 that's a long time ago 2019 but it took me a year to really get to a place mentally to say what am I going to do with my business? What is it going to be to do a new set? Because I've really got 20 minutes that I'm used to doing. And so it was like a year of training from November of 2019 to November 2020. And then it was a year of, okay, now I'm doing a comedy special, a 15 city tour. And I did that for the next year. And here I am tonight getting a full fee, what I would get paid at my highest level as a speaker as a comedian, which most comedians probably, I don't know how long it takes them to get there. And I've been on more stage time as a rookie because I did so many different cities. You saw I was on stage for over an hour that night. So and I don't do open mics because I don't want to go and spend evenings away from my family when I'm in town to get three minutes. If I'm going to be like on Friday, I did an hour, but my wife and my kids came. And yeah, I didn't get paid a lot for that hour, you know, like one twenty-fifth of what I'm getting paid today. But I did it from the comfort of like just driving up and then sleeping in my own bed. So I'm really like calculated about what's this lifestyle going to look like? Like I was talking to a producer about doing a TV series, taking what Jon Stewart did for politics, but doing it for finance. And my manager's like, yeah, you need to do a weekly show. I'm like, I'm not going to do a weekly show because I'm going to get to a place where the content's stressful and I'm going to be spending too much time away from my family. I'm going to do like six episodes a year, maybe 10. So I can really keep the lifestyle going. And that's what I learned from doing that tour is I overcommitted a number of cities in a short period of time, which infringed upon my lifestyle. And as fun as I what it was on stage, it took away from time with my family, time with about my health, time at home. So I'm really like defining the game that I'm playing, like not the way that Hollywood wants or other comedians have done the way that I want to do it. That's consistent with my life. Well, Garrett, this is just incredible. I mean, there's so many nuggets that we've been able to take. And, you know, for me personally, I've just really enjoyed this time with you. Where can our audience learn more about you? GarrettGunderson.com is the new site that shows a little bit of the comedy career and what I'm up to. And, you know, some really cool resources. There's an awesome money persona quiz at the bottom. So there's no charge for that. Yeah, that's a good place just to navigate and see what's going on. Yeah, and I just want to highly recommend that you check out Garrett's show. Take a look at where he's going. It'd be worth flying to another city to go check it out. But maybe it's in your own city 
and just see what he's got. The guy's hysterical and he's got so many good like sets and one liners. It's just time well spent. It'd be great date night material for anyone looking for some extra date nights and laughs and just a wonderful time. So thanks for being on the show. And uh, I just want to leave our audience with, to me, some of the greatest I guess, words of wisdom, what I like to kind of close every show out with. But, you know, this is something that for me, I kind of walked this. And so I want to share this with you because this was the key for me taking things to the next level. And that's this. What's the one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom and to move towards a life by design, not by default, a life where you can use your gifts and use your passions to better the world What's a way that you can do that today? Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.